This is Mercy Harper, writer for research services at APQC. Remember to rate, review, and subscribe to APQC Podcasts on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. Today, I'm here with John Tesmer, Executive Director of IT at APQC, and Holly Lycoglan, Principal Research Lead of Process and Performance Management at APQC, to talk about how organizations can use data to monitor and improve process performance. Data is absolutely key to understanding how a process is performing, but it can also lead organizations astray if they're looking at the wrong data or misinterpreting the right data. And John and Holly, I know you both have seen the good, the bad, and the ugly when it comes to the relationship between process and data. So my first question for you is, what are some red flags that your approach to process performance data is not working? John, you want to kick us off on this one? Absolutely. Uh, first of all, thanks for having me. Love love being on a podcast every now and then. Um, right. So I'll answer from an IT perspective. Um, and, and probably one of the biggest red flags I see around performance metrics and the issues that come around them is what it takes to get the data to report those performance metrics. So for example, if you establish a KPI that requires an analyst to pour through weeks worth of reports and do some manual summarization uh, and then uh, you know, correlate that with some other data and then prepare uh, the actual sort of performance of the process, uh, what you're going to find is that over time, that process is either going to slow down to the point where the metrics just never come anymore because the, the effort it takes to generate those metrics for that process is too significant, or people are going to automate the production of those metrics. And now you have like another process that you have to manage and, and another automation to deal with and another master data problem and another ETL problem and another problem and another problem, and another problem. So I, I'd say that if you're designing KPIs and you're designing um, dashboards and performance metrics and stuff like that, probably one of the biggest sort of gotchas I'd say is design for sustainability. Make sure the metrics that you're tracking are readily accessible through existing systems and anyone can access them. And even better, have that data automatically piped into your dashboarding system so that there is no human intervention between the actual generation of the metrics and the actual display and action of those metrics. That makes sense. So having putting having to put way too much work to even see that data, that totally looks like a red flag to me. Holly, any other red flags that you've seen? Uh, kind of on the opposite side of that is, is making sure that the data you've identified and the measures are, are the right ones. I think is one of the other big flags that we see when we're talking about this topic. And some of that is if your data or your metric doesn't scooch at all for many cycle times, that it may no longer be the right data point for you to be capturing. So you do need to go set in those automations and, and make sure that you're capturing, getting the data to people in an easy way, but also making sure that the data and the what it's supposed to measure is fit for what decision makers need to do. Oh, yes, and can I build on that? Because <laughs> Absolutely. there's such a huge, yeah. Um, this actually happened here at APQC recently where uh, I was working with a marketing department and they had a massive spreadsheet and you know, a bunch of data they were trying to correlate for mon monthly reporting metrics. And a big red flag popped up to me was that they kept getting this variation, huge variations month to month. You know, one month it's 100, another month it's 4,000. And, and I asked them like, 
what is this really supposed to do? Like, what are you trying to capture in this particular metric? And they had an idea of what they thought it was, but in reality, it turned out to be something a lot different. And we actually went back and unwound that onion and kind of peeled away all the different layers of what it was. We found out that they weren't really measuring what they thought they were trying to measure. So that's another kind of yes and to what you were trying to say, Holly, is like, maybe it looks like the right measure. And, and you know, one symptom of it being the wrong measure is like a static value over time, but it also huge variations could also indicate that same exact thing. Oh, definitely. And I think that's that whole conversation between the data people, IT, as well, then the business leaders and having those conversations to really drill into what is the right measure? How can we access it? Like you said, make sure we have good quality data coming in on a regular basis to be able to kind of make those decisions. Yeah. I think that leads right into my next question, which is about outlier data. How do you I see when something is an outlier and how do you make sense of it? There's a scale problem here, Mercy. Um, you know, an organization the size of APQC doesn't have a lot of, you know, what I'll call like machine learning, you know, algorithms in place. We don't have a real structured AI program that that does uh, things to kind of help us find those outliers. So we rely a lot of times on humans and we rely on people just kind of like taking representative samples of data and unwinding exceptions and trying to understand what those are. It doesn't do a very good job of finding things that are kind of hidden in, in that, the, the noise that's kind of hidden in that signal. We can only look at things that we can process in, in human scale time, if that makes sense. Um, I, I would say that more mature organizations that have uh, what I'll call more investment in you know, AI infrastructure, if that makes sense, they have the benefit of training models and having, you know, organizational computational resources pouring over data sets and saying, well, this looks kind of weird. Uh, maybe you should take a look at this. But what I found at the end of the day, and from my tenure working in open standards and, and all the data that we saw there and, and now working here in IT and all the data that we see here is that, you know, understanding something being an outlier really depends on understanding the facets that drive that. Um, you know, if you have, you know, 10,000 data points in, in a population of 20,000, you're rapidly approaching, you know, statistical normal distribution, if that makes sense. I mean, like you've got enough that, okay, it's normal. But if you're starting to see some outliers, then maybe what you're realizing is that we have multiple uh, populations that we're modeling in this sample. I mean, maybe there really are two different populations and we just haven't segmented them properly. So that gets into the, the question of like, well, what are we really measuring, right? Are we measuring the right things? Are we filtering out the things that don't need to be there? Um, and, and are we truly understanding what it is that we're measuring? Maybe we're getting some noise from some other process that's, that's influencing, this, influencing this and it's not really an outlier. So can I add on to that is, I mean, a lot of it is, even if you don't have the algorithms, making sure you use sound statistical analysis to be able to pinpoint any potential outliers to dig in, like you said, John, um, doing your frequency analysis, looking for what falls outside of the normal, the normal range, and then kind of digging into what those are. Um, and some of that also to be able to do that, especially if we're talking about looking at performance dashboards is putting in acceptable variations. You need to have a range of data because it's not always going to be straight on, but you need to have a certain range where it falls within that makes it most common. And so if you do start seeing things that fall outside of that or specific data points, then you can go and dig in and, and figure out if it is, like you said, some kind of interference in the analysis, a different you know group that you're not previously taking control of. If you look at kind of like the, the, the whole scope of 
you know, performance metrics and dashboarding and stuff like that. Um, you know, they're, they're, the reason dashboards exist and is to try and make a decision, right? So I'm going to put a dashboard out there. And if the number goes above or below a certain threshold, then I want to make a decision based on that. Um, you know, machine learning helps to basically reduce the cycle time it takes from the time that you get some signal to the time some decision gets made, right? So it, it can look at vast swaths of data and say, there's something happening here that you need to know about. Like I've, I've seen this before, it's an anomaly, go do something. So, you know, it can help to, to accelerate that decision-making, especially in organizations that have, you know, a lot of KPIs or a lot of different variations of things. So I think as organizations mature, they surround themselves with more data and then the scale it takes to analyze and process and make decisions on that data increases to the point where humans can't do it. And now we need machines to come in and support us. And that's really kind of like the, the genesis of it. There is a whole like, I want to use machines to help cleanse the data or better understand the processing and sort of the mechanics of, of, you know, cleanliness and hygiene, but that's different, I think, than where the true value of uh, machine learning will come out. So John, uh, you know, that sounds really great. I'm wondering though, what do you need to get there in terms of, of people, of, stuff you need to buy, the shape your data <laughs> needs to be in. Um, how big of a leap is this for organizations? Um, you know, for most modern organizations or organizations that were created in the past, let's say, five plus years, like, you know, startups and, you know, spinoffs and stuff like that that are creating their own infrastructures, if they're doing things in, um, you know, platforms as a service or, uh, infrastructures as a service or, you know, any of the, the modern kind of cloud platforms, they typically will get APIs or feeds out of their tools that make it very easy to access data on a regular basis. Um, you know, for companies that are stuck with legacy equipment, legacy hardware, legacy, 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 it's just, it's very difficult to, to get the data that you need in a shape that you can use to start populating all these data sets, right? So that's the first thing is availability of data. So if I don't have the data, I can't really do anything to make it come up and, and be there. But again, once the data is in place, then the next sort of phase is uh, now I've got this absolute ton of, of incoming data, whether it's you know streams of data from clicks or whether it's events or transactions and all this stuff needs to be processed and analyzed. Well, understanding how to apply a schema on top of that data so that you're not spending a million years grooming the data as it comes into some kind of analytical tool, but you're, you're applying a schema when you need to answer questions. That's probably one of the bigger hurdles I think organizations are finding today. Um, and, and I think machine learning and, uh, you know, understanding uh, how we can autonomously figure out data is, is a big part of what's happening now. So you're seeing organizations that have data, put all the data into a data lake, and then they're doing schema on uh, consume or schema on analyze. And there's a human looking at it and going, okay, this is a phone number, or this is a, uh, a size, or this is a skew, or this is a whatever. The next generation of that is machine learning looks at it and goes, I've seen a skew before. And from these 12 different data sources, these columns aren't labeled, but these look like skews. Is this a skew to you? And then a human mm -hmm. now doesn't have to go through all those 12 data sources. They just go, yep, skew, done. And then now the machine knows, and then they can use that same data from the lake in a new area. So basically it accelerates the process of taking this unstructured pool or lake of data and giving it 
structure so that a human can analyze and deal with it. That's a huge part of it. Um, and, and then the secret kind of thing that everyone's kind of worried about, but nobody's really talking about, um, is the, the impact of privacy and the impact of like just GDPR, California, uh, Virginia, I think is coming up with a new law. I mean, there's this whole kind of like, you know, govern yourself data model that's disappearing rapidly. I mean, in the past, it was really easy. Anybody can collect any data and do whatever they want with it. But now there are external restrictions being put on people about how they can use data. Uh, and, and those in the past, what was okay to keep is now rapidly becoming not okay to keep. Mm. Um, so if your data lake before had somebody's phone number in it, uh, now that's against the law in some places, or it's there are heavy penalties and, and it's economically infeasible to keep it there. So you can use machine learning now to try and help find that data, right? Because again, if it's in an unstructured pile, how do I know if these literally billions of rows have data that shouldn't be there or not? Well, I can throw a, um, a you know, a machine learning job at it to try and figure out, does this look like a social? Does it look like a phone number? Does it look like an email address? You know, all that stuff and, and try to find it. So that's kind of another application of it. Right. Holly, anything to add on this topic of machine learning and the dangers and the, the amazing <laughs> possibilities alike? I think it does have an amazing possibility. One of the things like the, the schema and meta tags on data has become an incredibly hot topic, especially as people are getting more and more data and it's unstructured. And then some of the things that we've been seeing is as some people are, are using, lovely enough, their process taxonomy is part of their data meta tagging. Um, and then they're able to then link it to GDPR um, and some of the other things that are helping them create a little bit more consistency than to be able to pull the data in the right places where they want it. Um, and teaching, you know, machines how to use that as a taxonomy to help structure the data when they need to pull it out and things along those lines. And I thought that was kind of really cool because as we see data, data and process, especially in our world, is completely linked. Um, so I think it's kind of a fascinating approach. And people are also then dipping their toes and having their process owners being their domain owners for their data as well, because there's typically a, a close relationship. Um, and so I not, not quite the same thing, but I think it's a great add-on and way that people are kind of able to kind of weave this into some of the machine learning to really focus on some of those like process performance issues. That's really interesting. So are people kind of like using process to see where GDPR might be, it sounds like? Well, a lot of it is, yeah, partially, but it's also the reverse. So understanding what data typically has GDPR issues and then flagging it to the process. So they can use that information then to also manage what information is collected. And also if you're looking at like going to the next step past performance, which is improvement, right? So making sure we have all of those checklists of things that are important as we're like adjusting those processes. Does it have a GDPR issue? Is that something we need to think about when we're reworking the process or how the information around it mm. is collected? And then, then some people are even then extending it also to like legislation. And, and other kind of risk requirements as well as part of that kind of data points. And it's kind of interesting seeing how those things kind of fit together really cool. That is really cool, awesome. Well, thank you both so much um, for being on today. Awesome, thanks for having me. Always a pleasure. Well, once again, I'm Mercy Harper. Thanks for joining us for this APQC podcast. Please go to apqc.org to learn more and have a great rest of your day.